Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Religious Studies. Today, we'll be discussing uh, Joseph Blankholm's The Secular Paradox on the Religiosity of the Not-Religious. For much of America's rapidly growing secular population, religion is an inescapable source of skepticism and discomfort. It shows up in politics and in holidays, but also in common events like weddings and funerals. In The Secular Paradox, Joseph Blankholm argues that despite the desire to avoid religion, Non-believers often seem religious because Christianity influences the culture around them so deeply. Relying on several years of ethnographic research among secular activists and organized non-believers in the United States, the book explores how very secular people are ambivalent towards belief, community, ritual, conversion, and tradition. As they try to embrace what they share, secular people encounter again and again that they are becoming too religious. And as they reject religion, they feel they have lost too much. Trying to strike the right balance, secular people alternate between the two sides of their ambiguous condition, absolutely not religious, and part of a religion like secular tradition. Joseph Blankholm, welcome to New Books in Religious Studies. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. So could you tell us a little bit about how you came to study secular communities? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of backed my way into it. And to explain that, I probably need to start I began a PhD in anthropology at the University of California, Irvine. And after my first year there, I went and did some field research in Zambia. I was interested in understanding the relationship between um, evangelicals and the state and ended up looking a lot at Jehovah's Witnesses because they have a very high uh, population of Jehovah's Witnesses per capita. Well, Zambia is the only officially Christian nation in Africa, and I was studying a lot of the secularism discourse and thinking a lot about separation of church and state. And so I read a bunch in that, thought a lot about it, of course, can't help but apply that to the American context when I'm living in the United States. I realized I didn't understand religion. Turns out it's really difficult to understand. And so I kind of, in that sense, backed my way into a religion PhD, transferred over um, to Columbia with a master's degree from Irvine, and was still interested in evangelicals, but sort of felt like I had room to explore and really felt uncomfortable as a white scholar of Zambia, in some ways expected to spend 12 to 18 months there to tell Zambians about Zambian life and reading the discourse on secularism and really taking people like Tal al-Assad very seriously, I realized, you know, there's not a good anthropology of the colonial center and its assumptions. And he suggests, you know, in formations of the secular, what is a anthropology of secularism look like? And I don't mean any knock on him, but he ends up doing a kind of armchair version of it. So what would it mean to actually do that? And I thought about that for a while and I wandered perhaps aimlessly for a while. Um, talking to just people in New York who are atheists, which I am. So it's just like throw a rock, hit an atheist. It's not a very uh, good way to begin something. But I quickly realized that there's a whole world of people who organize in various kinds of ways as non-believers. And that means everything from communities to lobbying organizations to legal outfits. 
And that became really interesting to me for a bunch of different reasons. And so in some ways it was me fleeing um, a colonial periphery focus to really realize, hey, the work needs to be done maybe on ourselves ultimately. And then also just tracing this interest I had for a long time in, in separation of church and state and flipping it in a way. So what does it mean to be a secular person who feels persecuted by an ostensibly secular state because it feels too Christian as opposed to the other way around? Thanks. That's really fascinating and really helpful also to understand the sort of colonial stance that you felt in, in your first studies at Irvine. So secularism can have a lot of definitions. It can be deployed in a lot of different ways in academic contexts. How are you defining secularism for the purposes of your book? I think that's a really good question because it's a really hard question. And what I'm increasingly doing is trying to move away from definition and toward meaning. And I know that might sound like a kind of soft semantic slippage from one thing to another, but I can explain what I mean by that. So I think, you know, as a social scientist, I'm often assumed to be performing science and I absolutely am, but I think social science is just kind of a different sort of science than other types of empirical science. Um, the easiest way I think about it is I study living things. If I squeeze them too tightly, they won't be alive anymore. And so how do you hold things gently? And I think defining things is too fine. It's too precise for what we're looking at. And so how do I shift to a focus on accuracy? And for me, that's a shift from definition to meaning. So I can play it out in language. Secularism means a lot of things. Secular means a lot of things. Um, those meanings work together to produce different meanings. There are connotations that exist because it means this and it means that and it means the other thing. I actually, this was the first article I wrote on all of this was based on a congressional briefing that I went to. And I was really fascinated by the productivity of the confusion in the room. So there were all these people using secular and secularism to mean different things, and that got work done. They were talking past each other and they were forming alliances because they weren't in agreement about what it means. So former US Representative Michelle Bachman, I mean, Congress is basically staffed by people in their 20s. So a very young man stood up, said that he was you know, a staffer of hers, and he said, you know, I really, there was all these people who were talking about secularism, I think in a way that's more like part of the secular movement, the atheist activist movement. He stood up and he's like, I agree. Secularism is really important. We need to get Reiki out of hospitals. And so he's coming at this from an evangelical perspective, wants separation of church and state, which is, you know, a Baptist value going back hundreds of years. And so he's saying, I agree with you. But the way they're working on agreeing is because secularism means many things. That's how that operates. And so if I go and define secularism and say, I mean this and not that, I lose all of that. I lose the opportunity to say it means a bunch of stuff. The slippage is where the action is. The confusion is part of what's successful here. And I get into that some in the book where it's like, hey, are we talking about secular in the sense of neutral and not? like partisan in a particular religious denomination or religion or non-religion? Are we talking about secular in the sense of absolutely not religious? Um, how are we using this and how are we thinking about secularism? So um, I, I know that's kind of a long answer, but it's my, it's my rant against definition in favor of meaning and in favor of like polysemy and the embrace 
of the multiplicity of meaning and frankly, um, confusion and for encountering things as they are rather than I would ideally like them to be. I think that's a really helpful answer, especially in thinking about how you're writing about secularism as a secular paradox, uh, as it says in the book of your title. So what do you see as the secular paradox or a yeah. secular paradox? Yeah, and you're, that's a great clarification as well, because I think there's a core paradox, but it leads to all of these other paradoxes if you trace it. And so related to how I've been thinking about um, how to make sense of, I don't know, secularism in the United States, secular people. I mean, when you hear it, you can hear that it must mean a bunch of things because what on earth am I even talking about? And so for this book, I'm really talking about people who are activists of some kind who are secular, people who are kind of very secular, atheist, humanist, free thinker. Um, and I'm thinking about, you know, all of the things that they do in order to have representation, to have an identity, to combat religion. And it gets down to this really simple thing. Um, you know, are they absolutely not religious as they so often claim, or are they religious or religion-like as some of them also claim? So um, for instance, you know, the Secular Coalition for America, this lobbying organization, it has members, member organizations, that are registered as religious nonprofits and many of many of their members consider themselves to be religious. They're not God-believing, but they're religious in other senses. They form communities, they have services on Sundays, they might have Sunday school, I'm thinking specifically about ethical culture. And then you have groups like the Freedom from Religion Foundation, which are sort of intimately anti-religious for the most part. They're all working together and they all believe basically the same things. They're all, um, Atheists in the sense they don't believe in God, but their atheism is really incidental. They have worldviews that are physicalist or materialist or naturalist. They're empiricists. They really believe in science. So they share all these beliefs. They might share certain practices. They might form communities. But that's what's paradoxical then is it's they're absolutely not religious, but they're religion-like in a lot of ways. And then I think that is the paradox because it's, it's what we inherit. So when I start thinking, oh, it's religion-like, what am I doing? I'm kind of chasing my own tail. I'm like, what? why does this look like religion to me? Um, so yeah, it's that, it's that strange combination of being part of a religion-like tradition, sharing beliefs and um, sometimes communities and other religion-like qualities with other people, but also simultaneously being absolutely not religious. And that leads to all kinds of problems because you know, if you're not religious, you don't want to seem religious. Yeah, I completely get that. In fact, I'm thinking about the two books that Lee Eric Schmidt has written about atheists and about St. Thomas Paine, where the characters in his book, the historical figures in his book, are having a really hard time explaining what they believe without touching that third rail of Christianity. And so I really love uh, the naming of the secular paradox or these series of, of paradoxes that come in. And in thinking about these activists and organizations I was really struck in the book about how you note that it's important to understand how and why secular people share their way of life with others. Could you speak to why you thought it was so important to explore that in depth? Yeah, I think there's various reasons. One is that when I'm talking to very secular people, I'm spending time with them. It's something that they struggle with. Um, you know, people will tell me I had been humanist for years before I discovered humanism. And then I realized I'm a humanist. 
So what is that process of self-discovery? It's finding something already present within oneself and then having a name for it. And if we just abstract a little bit, gosh, that's a lot like what graduate school was for me. It's me figuring out what my own assumptions are and what my own ideology is, which is frankly a deeply destructive process. It's ego-destructive, it's disorienting. Um, and I think it's how a lot of us are trained, especially in you know theory-focused departments. And so humanists are figuring out who they are. Humanists are figuring out that they actually share things with other humanists. And then from there, they start to think, well, you know, we need weddings. We need memorial services. Um, some of people who have children, they want to be able to send their kids to summer camp like they went, but they don't want to send them to religious camps. And so then they start thinking, okay, who are the other people who share our values? And are we going to frame that in a positive way and call it humanism or something else? Or are we going to frame it in a negative way and say, oh, it's the people who don't believe in God. It's the skeptics. It's the non or the anti, and we share the anti only with them. And so I'm basically looking at people who struggle with this, you know, are we sharing in what we don't share or are we sharing in something more substantive? And I think of it as a pendulum because there are people who come in to this, this movement, although it's kind of a multi-headed movement, who end up having kids and want things that are more community-based and look more like religion. So they start to swing that direction. And then for some people that's too religious and they need to swing it back and so the paradox is very generative. It sends people toward forms of communal living that look too much like religion to some, and it sends people away from those communal living, that communal living and those shared beliefs because it, it looks too much like religion. So there's just this, this sort of swinging back and forth um, that takes place. And I think that that's, I don't know, the core, the core struggle. Yeah, I can absolutely see that. And something that I really like in your work is that you show that secularism is not a hegemon. It's not monolithic, that it's multifaceted and that there are many different ways of living it and uh, practicing it. And I was struck in the first chapter when you introduce Roger and Ismail. Uh, it, each one embodies a different approach to defining a secular worldview. Could you tell us about each one's worldview and about the role of belief in each of their secularisms? Yeah, it's a great question. It starts to touch on, I think, one of the book's more controversial claims. Um, so Roger and Ishmael are really interesting. These are pseudonyms that I've given to people that I met. Um, Roger, I met fairly on early on in my field research at a conference for members of ethical culture in upstate New York. And he was pretty surly with me, um, as there were a lot of people at this conference. And I wrote it down in my field notes and I read much later, I'm like confused. I'm wondering why people are frustrated with me. So I went up to Roger and I said, you know, I'm here, I'm like studying non-believers. And he just stops me and he's like, we're believers, we're not non-believers. And then he clarifies to me how he doesn't wanna be like those atheists who say, you know, everything's negative and they're nihilist. They don't believe in this, they don't believe in that. Humanists sort of share these views um, and that's what Roger shares with other people. So he sees himself as a believer who believes in positive things. And then I talked to Ishmael much later on in my field research so that I'd already kind of been broken into some of these ideas. And I knew that belief was a really touchy word. So I intentionally asked him about what he believes toward the end of our interview. And he was super resistant, which made sense to me. I was essentially doing 
an experimental intervention with that question. And so he was telling me, you know, I'm not, I'm not a believer. I don't believe in anything, but I affirm this is true. And he kept like looking for different synonyms to it. Like, I mean, he would say, I believe in things because there's a really interesting distinction between believe in is as trust in or believe that something is real. And it doesn't always track in language. Believe in God is a wonderfully ambiguous example, but you can kind of see these distinctions. And so on the one hand, we have Ishmael who says, I'm a non-believer. I don't believe in anything. I don't have beliefs. And on the other, you have Roger who says, I'm absolutely a believer. I'm not a non-believer. And that's something I think we need to, we need to reconcile um, in a deep way to figure out, you know, do non-believers share beliefs? Is there something like a secular tradition that has a, a varied set of beliefs, just like in, among Christians? Not, not everyone believes in the same creed or whatever. There is a Christian tradition and there's variety within it. But it's a more fundamental question that I think you're getting at, which relates to my answer to the previous question, which is just like, I have beliefs. I have an ideology. I have some kind of unconscious set of ideas or do you call it doxa? Um, other people, you know, Maybe Marx would consider it a false consciousness because I haven't fully realized class consciousness, right? But, but we're taught these things in grad school and there's this tension. If I have underlying beliefs, but they're not beliefs that I consciously affirm, are they beliefs? I don't think we get to really decide between those things. And so that's what I'm trying to, to get at too is, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm a humanist like the humanists I study. I've been trained in kind of an anti-humanist critical theory tradition. I would say, you know, I'm a secular person, I'm an atheist, I'm not religious, but I'm part of that secular discursive tradition. As uncomfortable as that might be at times, I fit within a set of debates that's traceable and is part of this thing that I started studying thinking it was not like me. And that's uncomfortable. And I try to really get in there and dwell in the discomfort. Well, I think you do a marvelous job at it, especially when you start speaking about the Protestant game. It made me think about David Hollinger's work on how secularism, maybe he wouldn't put it quite this strongly, but it's sort of the end game of liberal Protestantism, where it becomes a, a worldview that's detached from sort of metaphysical belief in some ways. But even the idea of framing something as belief rather than practice is in some ways making uh is labeling something in Protestant terms or according to Protestant norms. So I'm curious, what do you mean by secularists playing the Protestant game? Yeah, it's, 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 it's hard. There's two different ways to approach it. So where I got that phrase, I was at this workshop at the, at one of the conferences of the American Humanist Association. And these guys were, they were debating um, whether there should be humanist chaplains in the military and one guy gets really angry with them. And he's like, we shouldn't be calling them chaplains at all. We should be calling them counselors or something because that's too religious. And, and another guy who's been fighting this for a long time, he's a, he's a former um, member of the army, I believe. And he's, he replies and he says, you know, this is the game we play. And then they have a conversation a little bit about what that means. And what they mean is the table's set. The game is set. It's a Protestant game. If you want to get recognition as a nonprofit, you got to look like a Protestant church. If you want to get to be recognized as a chaplain in the military so you can offer people counseling services that aren't going to go on their record because they're speaking to a psychiatrist instead, if you want to offer them that space, you have to resemble Protestantism. And so when he gave me that 
at the time I didn't realize, right? This is the wonderful thing about field notes is I get to go back and realize how foolish I was in a previous moment in my life. And then, you know, have read things and can understand better. So I'm like, this is it. He's explaining it. This is the Protestant game. Um, and so there's a way in which the kind of table set, but it goes deeper than just laws. Um, it has to do with how you and I speak. It has to do with how, how I even begin to talk about secular people. I'm dragging forth a Christian inheritance. I can't help but see them through it. And same for everybody else. So how do I talk about a tradition of people who share beliefs, build institutions, have ways of life, have rituals that they pass down generation to generation without using religion-like language, without framing them through a discourse of Protestantism? How do I talk about our ideology or our doxa or our underlying assumptions without talking about beliefs? How do I escape that? And so that inescapability I don't think that's navel gazing. I think it means I have to speak through the Christianity I can't help but do without and speak something other than it. And that's what I tried to do in the book that it's so difficult. So that's the Protestant game. It works on that micro level when you're trying to get humanist chaplains in the military and it suffuses everything I do because I don't really have any other game I can play on some level. Yeah, I just find that so, so well put. Just the idea that Protestantism is more than a belief system. It's also a governmental way of functioning. It's a way of uh, participating in the public sphere writ large. And I thought that that was a really important point. I was also really struck by this intervention that you made in speaking about Black atheism and how it contradicts popular ideas about the whiteness of atheism. Now, there's been some work on African-American free thinkers and secularists um, that's come out in the past few years. But I was really struck in your ethnography, talking to living, breathing Black atheists. And I was wondering if you came away with some ideas about how Black atheists negotiate their relationships, both to other Black people, but also to other atheists in the United States. Yeah, it's it's important because the Black atheists I spoke to, and really other non-white atheists, especially certain Hispanic atheists, they showed me how it works more than other people. They see it in a different way, the secular paradox, this set of contradictions. They explained it to me, and it was my job to try to figure out how to then apply that set of insights much more broadly. And so I'm grateful for that. And I think that I just want to say that first, because the reason that they can see it so clearly is that they're excluded, and they're figuring out these systems from the outside in, and it's their that if they want to participate, they have to reverse engineer this thing that doesn't include them. Um, and I, you, you're right that, I mean, if you look just statistically, um, organized atheism in the United States is disproportionately white. Um, Non-believers, atheists on surveys like Pew surveys are disproportionately white. But I think that that's, it's really important that we avoid the fallacy of them thinking atheism is white. Because if I go and I talk to Black atheists who have fought really hard to have an identity, to be recognized in their often deeply Christian communities, um, and then to be recognized in white communities that don't want to recognize racial differences because they believe in some kind of universality of truth, a universality in science and atheism. I, I think of those shirts that say, you know, we're all African, that were really popular for a while that I think Richard Dawkins popularized. And so, we can't just think, oh, this is a, a mostly white thing, so it's a white thing, because that erases 
people's entire lives and things that they fought for. And, and that's, I think, pretty, pretty key um, to not do that. And so people told me in various ways that they live a double negative, which means that they are not fully included in atheist communities. And they're also don't want to be included on some level, because when they go into white atheist communities, there's a distinctively white culture to it. And secular culture is really uh, aniconic, and it's really against any kind of ornament. And it's in general a kind of, it denigrates the senses. I'd say atheist art is very boring. I'll be frank about it, and intentionally so. And it's kind of a continuation of a trend within Protestantism that's anti-Catholic. And so these are spaces that are sort of bland, milk toast, white, and they don't resonate with black atheists and they don't resonate with their experiences. So they want to form separate groups. You have white atheists who don't respect their forming of separate groups. And then uh, one woman told me, you know, a, a Christian, a black Christian woman yelled at her at a conference and said, you can't be atheist, you're black. And so she used that as an example of how there are many times when her identity is denied because, um, you know, Curtis Evans, right? The burden of black religion. There's a black body bears an excess of religiosity within a larger cultural frame that can't help but see it otherwise. And so to be a, a black atheist body, I mean, one woman told me I'm an evangelical atheist because it's her politics to be that black woman atheist that living contradiction in some ways. And so that kind of double negative, that negative from both sides that people, I mean, their insights were unbelievable. And I mean, that's humbling for me. It's hard to, it's a sense of vertigo to be talking to somebody and realize like, oh, not only is somebody explaining what I could only see out of the corner of my eye, but they're completely disorienting me by putting me on new footing. And so I had to process those insights over time and go back to some of those transcripts and notes and really make sense of the truth that people were sharing with me. Thanks so much for sharing that. I'm really struck in by the woman who described herself as an evangelical atheist as well. Because when I think about evangelicalism, I, in a, you know, I inescapably go to belief, but I also go to practice and think about various rituals and debates over rituals like baptism, or even things that don't necessarily have to be religious, but take on a religious flair with things like weddings and funerals as well. So how do non-religious people participate in ritual? And could you give us an example of how they do so? Yeah, there are a lot of examples. I went to some wonderful workshops um, where people are thinking about how to create rituals for different types of rites of passage, I guess you might say, or life cycle rituals. And it's part of a larger movement. Clark Roof is even writing about this in the 90s when he's writing about boomers and, and seekers. Um, he calls it reflexive spirituality. And so he's talking about people who understand religion in a kind of abstracted way and recognize that there are these things that are rituals or life cycle rituals or rites of passage that they can kind of bound and that are important for marking time and marking a sort of season of life from one stage into another, um, be it adolescence or um, a later stage as well. So they do, I mean, people have naming ceremonies that are like baptisms. They have uh, coming of age ceremonies that are like first communion or confirmation. They have um, weddings and they often say memorial services instead of funerals. It's very rare that a body will be present um, at uh, atheist or, or non-believer memorial service. And also recently, this is interesting, they um, have been doing more invocations. It's just an abstraction from prayer. 
So these are all kind of secular abstractions from particular religious behaviors. And that abstraction sort of erases the particularity of the religiousness of it. And that's a kind of strategy, but it, it holds the same place in a life. Um, and we can, you know, it, all of this runs parallel to like the neo-pagan movement um, and other people who are intentionally recovering something called ritual. Uh, and, and heck, we see, we see evangelicals doing the same thing when they start to convert to orthodoxy, um, which was quite common in the 80s, or go back to high church practices like uh, in the Episcopal church. And so it's a kind of recovery of ritual after its denigration. It's that pendulum swinging again in the secular paradox where it becomes too religious or too Catholic. In this case of Protestants and it swings back and becomes, you know, we're secular, but we're human. We still need to mark time. We can't live in religion's remainder. That's a beautiful line, not being able to live in religion's remainder. And it's making me think about how secular people discuss their beliefs, but also how they arrived at those beliefs and came to identify with them or, or lack of belief. So how do secular people talk about conversion and what's the role of ethics uh, in conversion? And then uh, if it's not too much to add into one question, why is it so important to be seen as an ethical person as a, as a secularist or a humanist or a non-believer? Yeah. Those are great questions. The I might start with the last one because I think it offers us a kind of inroad. There's a general defensiveness about morality among non-believers, secular people, atheists, free thinkers. And you can see it in everything from um, the Harvard humanist chaplain, Greg Epstein wrote a, wrote a great book um, called Good Without God. And you can hear it right in the title. It's defensive. It's, it's saying we can still be good without God. And I, I fielded a survey last year um, of people who have been a part of a non-believer organization in one way or another at some point in their life. And we got an enormous amount of responses, um, 12,370. It's a really good uh, return to field. And there are these open-ended questions that people can type in whatever they want. There are three main ones. And I was shocked by how much people told us. Um, we ended up having tens of thousands of responses and coded them in, in all kinds of ways. And there's, a, there's thousands where people are saying defensively, because we're not asking them, they're saying, I'm good, I don't need God, I don't need religion to be moral. And so that got me thinking in a different way about it where you know, to be free from moral restriction of a tradition, to be free from the moral restriction of a community or a religion, is liberating, but it also raises the question of immorality. So to be free from certain moral structures is in theory to be without morality. And so that independence that comes with sort of being not located, that's terrifying to outsiders and to, and to atheists. And then the flip side of it too is just, you know, atheist for most of its history as a term and a concept has meant heretic and it still has that sense. It meant that in ancient Greece. It meant that really for most of its history until the French materialists started calling themselves atheist as a self-appellation in the late 1700s and married it to a kind of positive set of beliefs like um, materialism and, and physicalism or naturalism as they're later called. And so that's the other thing that has to do with conversion then is if you're breaking from a set of structures, are you then adopting a new set? Is there a new ethics coming in? Is there a new 
even just fundamental set of beliefs about the world and what's real and what's true coming in. And for some people, there's not really. Um, I'm doing a big project now, uh, tracking these families since 1970 and conducting a very large number of in interviews. And the fact is some people, I mean, I think, uh, you know, sociologists like Mark Chaves have called it incongruence, which is just inconsistency or incoherence in people's belief systems. Some people are kind of incoherent and they're not one thing, but they're not really another thing. And they're kind of a hodgepodge and I don't judge that and that's fine. But the people for the most part that I'm talking to who identify as secular, as free thinker, as humanists who are part of these groups, they're not just deconverting, they're converting to something else. They're becoming something and realizing, hey, I'm already humanist. I do actually have a system of ethics. There is something that grounds me. It might not be a universal system with God in the same way that Christians have it. I think that's the keystone problem in general is what I think about it as, right? So you build an arch with a keystone. God is law, creator, uh, intervener, depends on your kind of Christianity, right? But God's that keystone. You take out the keystone, that arch is going to collapse. So you have to build an arch in a different way that doesn't have God in all those roles. And that's something that humanist, atheist, freethinkers have to do. They have conversations about. And, and frankly, this is like, you know, in the academy, among philosophers, among analytic philosophers, this is, suddenly we're basically talking about the entire field of philosophical ethics um, as it's been developing, especially for the past 50 years. And so conversion, right? Are you deconverting into something? If you're not, you're going to probably be pretty defensive about your ethics. And if you are, and it's not a silo that's recognized by mainstream Christian culture, which is to say down there in American culture, and you're calling yourself an atheist, which is to say a heretic, there's going to be this kind of moral assumption, which is to say an immoral or amoral assumption, an assumption of your immorality. So I think they're all of a piece. Um, and whether deconversion is conversion, I think sometimes deconversion is not really also conversion because incoherence and incongruence are possible. But a lot of times it is. Yeah, this is something that I have a friend who has looked at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I'm a Mormon campaign, followed by... Um, ex-Mormons, uh, I'm an ex-Mormon campaign and thinking about the language around deconversion and conversion to something else. And anyway, just as an aside, I, that may be something that you may be interested in at, at some point, if you're looking for something you can research on, on YouTube for a, for a short answer. But the last question that I have for you about your book is thinking about secularists and humanists across time and space. So for instance, American Jews, uh, as Rachel Gross has shown, have this sort of nostalgic idea about their immigrant foreparents coming to the United States as practicing Jews. Or this is something that Christians may have about, I am just like the early Christians in Rome uh, facing the lions uh, in the Colosseum or something like that. Is there a secular tradition that moves across time and space where secularists or humanists are identifying with those who came before them and maybe either identifying with their struggles or identifying with their triumphs or, or both. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, especially as a scholar working primarily in religious studies, this is my, what I see as the kind of core contribution of this work. It's the, it's the part that maybe you, maybe you write a book and it has a lot of different things it's arguing. It's the thing that I'm still invested in thinking through and need to keep thinking about probably, you know, for another decade is whether secular people are part of a tradition and you can trace that tradition and how far you can trace it and then what a tradition is. 
And so there are humanists who have traced their tradition. Some of them trace it hundreds of years. Some of them trace it thousands of years. As you can guess, it's easier to trace it hundreds of years. You're gonna have stronger evidence. It's a harder case to trace it thousands of years. I think they're both in some ways kind of compelling cases. So if you trace it hundreds of years, it's really easy to go back to the secular religions created in the wake of the French Revolution. It's really easy to go back to August Comte's religion of humanity, which is based on a Catholic structure, even has a catechism. It's really easy to go back to the free religion movement in the United States, to go back to the movements that come out of Unitarianism and become what we think of as humanism in the 20th century, which takes its name from August Comte's religion of humanity. It's easy to trace that sort of institutional history. There's a deeper history that I think also matters, which is if you've ever read Epicurus in you know, the, the sort of the philosopher who's, in, who's a famous atomist along with Democritus in ancient Greece, if you've ever read Lucretius, the sort of Roman version, which is we have a, a whole poem, De Rerum Natura, on the nature of things. If, you, if you've read those things and you're a secular person or you're familiar with what it is to be a secular person, you're, there's a kind of uncanny quality, a striking resemblance. And then is that a coincidence? Is it, as I think some atheists would have it, uh, a lost truth that's been rediscovered because it's a universal truth and is always discoverable? Or is there a kind of chain of, of citation and reference, a continuity? Is there a kind of contingent silo that we can trace through just like we would trace, say, the Aristotelian influence on uh, Christianity and especially that of St. Thomas Aquinas or the Platonic influence that comes in through Augustine. I think that you could argue there's an Epicurean influence on the secular tradition. And people like Louis Althusser in his late work argue this absolutely. He calls it a subterranean current that flows through Western thought. And he has a bunch of touchstones that he points to. And that gets really uncomfortable because then we have to decide is the critical theory tradition, a kind of skeptical tradition, does it really stand outside of things? Or is it, a, is it a debate that's been going on among people? Not the sense that anyone's been signing off on the same creed, but they've been fighting over the same questions with some of the same underlying assumptions for literally thousands of years. That's a bigger claim. I'd like to make that claim. That's a claim I stand by until someone can make me think otherwise because I can't help but think it after having read what I've read. And it's so, it's impossible to deny if you wanna trace it hundreds of years. There's, it's just this, the evidence is overwhelming. And I think, you know, Lee Schmidt's most recent book of the, of the pair that uh, Church of St. Thomas Paine is really pointing to that. Although I am fascinated by how in that book and the book previous, he's very, very hesitant and, and kind of avoids attributing coherent beliefs to non-believers. Um, it's funny because I think I find those just absolutely of everywhere. Um, he looks at, for instance, a woman, Elmina Slinker, and Slinker has very coherent beliefs if you read her work. And so there is a kind of belief aversion in contemporary religious studies, and we should ask ourselves why we don't want to talk about beliefs anymore, because it turns out they may actually be quite important, even as it may also be the case that not everyone has Protestant-like beliefs. Well, Joe, thanks so much for your time today. One last question. Do you have another project that you're starting to work on now? I do. I am in the last month of data collection for a massive project I'm excited about, um, I inherited what's called the Longitudinal Study of Generations, which is uh, uh, more than 300 families that have been tracked since 1970, so more than 50 years now. And we've reached the fifth generation for the first time with a survey and now interviews. So I think we'll have about 150 interviews by the end of the month. 
And I'm trying to use that material to think through a bunch of questions like um, the intergenerational transmission of values, but also how do you talk about religion under conditions of de-Christianization? So if there are more and more people who are not Christian, um, does our language even work anymore? And I think that that's a fundamental problem for not just the sociology of religion, but religious studies focused on the contemporary. And I don't know the answers yet. So hopefully I come up with them and don't just say this is a set of problems, but that's what I'll be working on for most of next year. Well, thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule to speak to new books in religious studies. Thank you. This is great. Appreciate it.